0: Today's discussion is on understanding how known and unknown changes can impact your business and how to prepare. Change is inevitable. Growth is optional, according to John Maxwell. There are so many moving parts to navigating government contracting. Sometimes you can't control or anticipate the change. And in those cases, Ms. Maya Angelou says it best. If you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. Welcome to Unveiled. GovCon Stories, where we explore the experiences and share the stories of small businesses in government contracting to spotlight the often sugar coated or avoided discussions that speak to the reality of doing business within the U.S. public sector as a small business. Today, we're going to have a very candid conversation just about change, because this is something that has been truly affecting uh, small businesses since the beginning of GovCon. But lately, we've noticed that there's been an uptick in just the shifts and the changes in the marketplace that have, you know, compounding and exponential impact to small businesses. And before we jump in, I just wanted to give a story with regards to uh, myself. And of course, Yaz is going to jump in as well about uh, our experience with GovCon and the the resulting frustration thereof. As we stated for new guests, uh, myself and Yaz have been in government contracting a very long time. Uh, over 20 years, um, similar and differentiating experiences throughout that period of time. And for myself, you know, I've transitioned from being an employee, being a civil servant, a member of the armed forces, to being a business owner, an entrepreneur. um, Before actually developing my business uh, or trying to grow my business, as what some would consider a more traditional company, I started as a consultant. And I will state that part of the hesitation for me in just making a decision to actually grow the business is because of all of the uh, barriers, the regulations and the constant change that happens. It always appears as though for every positive benefit that comes up, whether it's a small business forward, policy or legislation or program, I could probably tell you five or six reasons why it's not that great (laughs) and and who it won't help. And, and, you know, for that, after a while, it, it just, I wouldn't say I became pessimistic, but I just didn't feel it was worth it and wanted to pull away from government contracting. And that's why Maya Angelou's quote about you know, if you don't like something, change it. And if you can't change it, change your attitude. It is very much necessary in government contracting to check yourself and have a true understanding of who you are, what your goals are, what's driving you to do what you do, and check that attitude because this space is not going to change just because you're mad or angry or don't like something or don't think it's fair you know, there's, and you may be right, there are certain things that need to change. There's a lot of things that need to change, but the likelihood of it changing to accommodate you in the timing that you need to be successful and achieve what you're trying to pursue in the space is most likely slim to none. So understanding that and a, having a shift in your mindset and, and your attitude, I think is very important um, when it comes to, you know, pursuing opportunities and operating within government contracting.
1: Yeah, Tasha and I both are very passionate about this topic. And, you know, we welcome all of you all to today's podcast on change and how it can impact your small business. To the quote that Tasha just just gave you, I mean, it hits near and dear. I have had to take a break from working on-site at government contract sites just because I needed an attitude adjustment and and a break. And I mean, you know, that's, that's life. There could be any number of situations where you just need to take a break. This was... This was one of them. Um, not being able to effectively impact change got frustrating. And so, you know, to Tasha's point, if I couldn't change the situation, I needed to change my outlook on it. And it was just time for a little bit of a break in order to do that. And With that, uh, your host Tasha and Yad will we'll kick it off today, um, specifically talking about um, federal regulations and policies that can frequently change and impact small businesses. There's a couple that we will hit kind of as as highlights for the conversation today. Government contracting rules that well, we have spent a significant amount of time and just due to the nature of how frequently it changes over the course of this podcast. I'm sure contracting rules will come up plenty of times. We've already had a couple of, of hosts, I mean, guests, join us, and we'll talk about that some today. Um, specifically, changes to federal acquisition regulations, small business set aside statuses, procurement processes, things that shape opportunities. Um, another common one, tax laws. Changes to corporate tax rates, deductions, um, income taxes, capital gains taxes. We are not tax experts, but we are working to get some tax folks <laughs> as a part of our conversation. I am not touching that one, taxes, and I do not get along. I don't think anyone likes them. I am on the no-tax team, especially as a D.C. resident uh, with no representation, but I won't go there either. worst um, <laughs> <laughs> spot health care and benefits um, revisions to the affordable care act employer mandates um, health insurance requirements these all are all things that change have changed will continue to change impact your small businesses labor laws i know plenty plenty of hr directors and other folks that you know spend all of their days in health care and labor laws just because of how much it impacts the business um, and impacts your employees um, minimum wage just recently changed overtime pay regulations have changed Leave policies, contractor rules. I mean, the list goes on. Also, very, very impactful things that you have to stay aware of, even if you're not an expert in it. You just need to be in, in tune with what's going on around you. Trade policies for some of those listening in, your product providers. So, it, their export import regulations that change frequently. Trade agreements, and you know that may seem out of scope for this audience, but it's really not. You'd be surprised at how many different types of contracts that the government releases that have impacts to all sorts of trade policies and product-related activities. Cybersecurity, we'll talk about a lot towards the end of the session. Uh, Financial regulations, banking, lending, that's a long list as well. Workplace safety for those who have large offices that are moving back into offices, OSHA is coming back too. They're back to work just like we're back to work. So there'll be policies that impact your businesses on site as well as government sites. Environmental regulations, EPA is, is a, is a constant, um, and emissions for those folks that are in our Department of Transportation lines of work, and energy as well. And then industry-specific things that, you know, get into food, transportation, manufacturing. These are all things that are just moving pieces and parts. that right run in the background Um, and sometimes in the foreground as well, that impact small businesses. And that's not even a comprehensive list. We just kind of gave you some some of the the clip notes, if you will. But we're gonna talk through a few of those in more detail. I think starting with some of the government contracting rules. I mean, Tasha, I know you live and breathe on the the 8A side (laughs) right now, um, just because you're staying aware of kind of the conversations that are going on. Um, You wanna jump into kind of 8A? Also, yeah, like the government contracting side.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, you're right. 8A has been a frequent of mine, um, having recently submitted, submitted a package in the current court issues, rulings that took place down in Tennessee that has impacted the status and state of the program. So I've been keeping my ear to the ground on on what's changing with that. And just for our listeners who may not be familiar with the SBA 8A program, SBA is the Small Business Administration and it's a government agency that helps advocate for small businesses in the US. They essentially have developed the 8 program as a subset of SBA and it's designed to help disadvantaged businesses gain access to government contracts. It's supposed to level the playing field for small businesses that might otherwise not have the same opportunities as some of the large corporations that are in the space. The 8A program, it's been around for a very long time, since the 70s, and it's helped thousands of small businesses gain access and be able to grow their businesses. And in fact, according to recent statistics, over 20,000 small businesses have participated in the program over the past few decades. In order to qualify for the SBA program, you have to meet several different criteria. And it includes being um, at least 51% owned and operated by a socially and economically disadvantaged individual or individuals having a net worth less than um, $250,000 and having an average income less than $250,000 for the previous three years. I want to just clarify also that the SBA program, in case you are thinking that it's specifically for just certain ethnicities or things of that nature, it is specifically for socially and economically disadvantaged individuals, meaning there is not a minority or ethnicity tied to allowance to participate in the 8A program. Although part of what has been brought up in the courts is the allowance for the rebuttal presumption for um, certain ethnic groups who are given the presumption of disadvantage, and that is uh, being uh, litigated or Challenged in the courts today, and so the fifty-one percent owned by someone who is considered economically or socially disadvantaged; those, the members in certain minority groups, uh, gender like women, individuals who've impacted by physical or mental disability, as well, qualify for that particular group or those or, or that designation. Um, A business can also qualify if it's located in a historically underutilized zone or a hub zone, um, which is another one of the set asides that's run under SBA. Once a business is accepted into the program, they can receive tons of benefits, such as like counseling, training, and mentoring, um, assistance with obtaining contracts. It is not a golden ticket, but it definitely is a tool to help small businesses navigate the space and get access where they otherwise probably would not have had that access and the criteria helps to ensure that businesses that qualify for the program are truly small are truly small businesses that need the assistance and support and so the latest that i've heard with regards to the 8a program is that the program had been placed on hold at this time i know and we'll, and will we will I won't deep dive too much on 8A because we do have a, a episode that's coming up where we we talk about it pretty extensively, but they are starting to evaluate or continue to evaluate applications that were put in. But also their main focus right now, obviously with the end of year being here is ensuring that active awarded 8A companies that have contracts are having their rebuttal presumptions. I'm sorry, their... um. Narratives required to be submitted as a result of the court ruling requiring all 8A firms to write a narrative, a narrative in alignment with the guidance put out by SBA. They're making sure to put a lot of resources on evaluating those narratives and getting those approved so that the small businesses can actually receive uh, contract awards and execute on that business for the end of year. And then, as I stated, I, I know that they have also started evaluating as they're able applications that had already been submitted had already done their um responded to all of the deficiencies and was basically waiting for for a notice and so the program does live and it continues to go on you know i believe that it will continue to go on because there is a need um, to ensure that the indu- the small business industrial base in the US government contracting market um is sustained and that we do have um you know small businesses in addition to large there's several reasons why that's an important factor to have the diversity um within the ecosystem with small mids larges um and you know finances or um costs being one of those the government needs to have that range of costs and i'm not saying that just cuz a company is a small business that their pricing is cheaper but they do tend to be more cost effective or can be more cost effective because on average, their overhead isn't as excessive or as complicated as you tend to get with as you get uh, larger companies within the government contracting space. Um, Tasha,
1: I want to hit on a comment you made um, earlier about some of the potential misconceptions um, regarding the 8a program. Um, one being that it's specifically set aside for minorities, um, and, and you know, you you hit on that. But another one I want to kind of touch on is that. Um, the, the 8A program is something that's meant to kind of impact the small business's bottom line or help them stay afloat or turn a profit. This isn't a procurement vehicle at the satisfied status. It's to enable you to operate um in a place and have an advantage in certain arenas for certain contracts. But you still got to put in the work. You still got to you know, go for the contract. You still have to have your business operations aligned. You still have to Be able to write a compliant and compelling response. Um, It does not hand you work or hand you money or guarantee you a contract. So I do want to, you know, dispel some of those potential misconceptions about the program as as we talk about it. And uh, we'll talk about HUBZone a little bit later on in the show as well. But I did just want to add that because I have seen common questions about kind of the profitability of being in the, the 8a. I don't think I've ever seen any metric that specifically, <laughs> Sasha, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've never seen anything that specifically says, you know, if you su- if you are accepted into the 8a program, you're guaranteed an increase of X in profitability or revenue targets of blah, blah, blah. Like that that doesn't exist. This is, this is a set aside, but it doesn't guarantee you anything. If you don't utilize the program, utilize the resources that are available. I mean, Nothing plus nothing still equals nothing.
0: Agreed with that. And and in addition, you combine that with the topic we're talking about today, change, you know, the outcomes of the court case is going to have and has and is having impact to small businesses already. Um, and going forward, depending on the scope, the, the full scale and scope of the impact to small businesses, um, even those eight A's, how that's going to look for those companies and actually executing and pursuing contracts is gonna be a little bit different. It's gonna look a little bit different. And being able to understand how to pursue opportunities and putting in that effort um, is gonna be that much more important. You know for companies to be successful whether they have that have have the set aside designation or not
1: absolutely um let's let's talk about another hot topic the continuing resolution um it is that time of year again um we call it we're including it in this change conversation um <laughs> because it's something that businesses small businesses all businesses but definitely small businesses are going to need to plan for. Um, this is becoming a norm. Um, what changes every year is how long there is a CR, the impacts of the CR, who's got funding, who doesn't. Um, so that part's an unknown until it happens, but this is becoming a, th- a thing in, in government, across the government, that you have to adapt to. Uh, for those that don't know, you've probably heard on the news, especially if you listen to WPOP or something along those lines. Um, about continuing resolution, pending continuing resolution. So a continuing resolution is a, a temporary funding measure passed by Congress to keep the government running, in short, um, while they're still working through a formal budget uh, to pass for the fiscal year, which is why it happens at this time of year, every year. It is directly aligned with the fiscal calendar. Um, it typically extends funding for existing programs at current levels for a specified period of time. You don't know what the current levels are that specified period of time until it happens. Again, these changes, they're gonna happen. Um, the detail, details and implications of a particular continuing re- resolution can vary widely depending on its previous issues, some things that have maybe come up that the public isn't privy to, um, as well as provisions and the political context at the time, which is why every year, the CR may look a little, little bit different. Um, there have been a number of continuing resolutions in the last couple of years. They've ranged from a few days to almost six months. Um, a few reasons why these resolutions are used, um, but typically it's because Congress is unable to pass a full year appropriations bill in time. Um, this can lead to a lot of unnecessary stress for the government agencies, as well as us, you know, the business owners and public servants supporting the government. Um, and all the other people that rely on the government and these services. Um, there are twelve regular appropriation bills, um the start of the new fiscal year, and all twelve have to be passed. We won't jump into too many more details on that, but you can imagine how uh, painful this could get as a congressman or woman, you know working to, at the end of every fiscal year, now push these changes through. again, it's it's while this is fiscal budgets are an annual event the political environment and a lot of things change and impact how budgets move forward. And those changes trickle down. If they flow down to everyone else that's impacted. Um, Some key things to know about continuing resolutions, um, they are a stopgap. So as a small business, you may see dribs and drabs of funding come in. So as little portions of those appropriations and bills are approved or budgets are released, you may see incremental funding, something you now have to look to plan for um, mm-hmm. and be able to tolerate as a part of managing your business. Because, you know, they may be working off of the same funding as last year and looking at, uh, look trying to look ahead into to what they budgeted for. But if they've already had to reduce their budget and a certain agency for the upcoming year, um, your dribs and drabs are going to be smaller as well as be incremental. So now you've got lower funding coming in as well as a lack of dependency on the timing in which they're going to come in. Um, So things you have to be aware of and and attempt to plan for. Um, And and just
0: one way to plan for that, or at least try to work it into how you're operating is to ensure that, you know, you are having uh, conversations like with your contract officers that you're very aware of what is in the terms, like in your, within your contract um to see if it covers um sequestrations and or you know continuing resolutions um uh, what allowances or options are there for that and then minimizing or reducing you know unnecessary spending right because um there may be opportunities for you to, to recoup some of the cost in preparation for a continuing resolution but you have to one like i said have those conversations with your contract officer you have to um uh, understand, like, what your contract uh, provides and allows, and then um, the efforts that you take in order to prepare or sustain through that sequestration document um, those efforts and activities. But I'll let you go ahead and continue. Yeah, no, those, those
1: are all very good points. Um, and with these CRs, I mean, they're intended to be short-term, but there may be multiple CRs. And in some cases, if they extend past a certain period, um, they may even do contract awards.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: diversification is key. And we'll talk a bit more about some of the things you can do to prepare. Um, but some other points to keep in mind, um, this it creates a lot of uncertainty uh, for federal contractors, as well as federal employees. I don't want to leave out the, the federal employees, because we've seen over the years that you know while the salaries are, are paid in arrears or, or things of that nature, in some cases, um, not all, and it's a very tough impact for everyone. Um, and it, it it makes it it hinders kind of a clear path forward for agencies. And again, the clear path forward impacts your path forward as someone supporting federal services. Um, and they they also significantly impact long term planning. If you can't get through the day today, it's hard mm-hmm. to be able to look into the future uh, for investment. So those conversations that you would typically be able to have once you're into the new fiscal year about what can we plan for for the future? What can we plan for in, you know, the third and fourth quarter of the year and new work and new budgets or carving out new opportunities are tough conversations for your clients to have because they're fighting day to day right now just to keep funding aligned for the work that has to get done, especially those that are supporting operations contracts um, and things of that nature where you're going to be working at risk. So just things to keep in mind and especially because this is, conversation around change, changing your attitude um, while frustrating (laughs) as it may be, um, changing your attitude to to kind of remember that that everybody is impacted by this as as we all, most in the DMV area and other places as well, work for the government and these federal employees are also under a lot of stress to try and keep the lights on, keep projects funded um, and be a part of those conversations as well (laughs) as their own job. So while it impacts our contract workforce, it impacts everybody that's working in in some capacity for the government. Um, And and unfortunately, when CRs don't get passed, it results in government shutdown. Um, So non-essential workers um, aren't working at all. Um, And that, as we'll talk about more, gets into the diversification um, of having a blend of essential versus non-essential employees and contracts where you can kind of augment your staff to be a little bit more tolerance of these kinds of things that are these changes that are becoming our norm. Um, You know, and continuing resolutions allow for ongoing operations, but they're not, they're not an end-all be-all. They're a short-term thing that we've we all kind of live through. So, you know, I want to transition over to what you can do to to prepare for the potential close of federal governments, the reduction in communication, because these things are hard to talk through when you've got folks that aren't in the office. Um, and how small businesses can be more resistant or resilient to these uncertainties.
0: Yeah, and I kind of touched on some of those already earlier in the conversation um, about that, you know, just ensuring you have a good relationship with your contract officer and before, uh, you know, all the mess hits the fan, having that conversation in advance versus waiting until something happens and, and, you know, retroactively trying to figure things out um like like y'all said when people are out of the office especially if your program or your contract is determined to not be an essential function um or activity it can get pretty dicey with trying to um have those communications and um i know as you said i don't want to reiterate or restate some of the things that i already talked about but I think the diversification, not only with the types of opportunities that you have, but even the types of agencies that you pursue, this is something, of course, that has to be done well in advance, right, um, of something like this. And um, you know, there's different colors of money at within an agency, and then different agencies also explain have- that, <laughs> Tasha. Explain that. That's another one of those
1: things that we talk about that people aren't going to know what you mean.
0: (laughs) But when I say different colors of money, uh, you know, uh, there are certain budgets that are set aside for specific types of work. Um, In the the government, it's not like you can have money that has been allocated or obligated for uh, O&M, and then you take that money and use it for research and development. Like, uh, that's not allowed. And that's those verticals of funding are considered different colors of money. And so um, in within a single agency you can have, you know multiple types of funding that's available, but in planning your strategy for pursuing um, opportunities, thinking about the diversity and the types of agencies that you pursue, some agencies, like for example, when you have Department of Defense, there's the intelligence community, you got federal civilian and within those, um, especially on the fed civ side you have organizations that are considered what quasi government would you call it that yeah um yep. i think federal reserve is is one of those like quasi agencies these are and, and what i mean by quasi is that they are government entities but, but they inherently have to function like a regular or commercial business they tend to uh, actually develop revenue most government agencies don't create revenue like they don't have budgets where they're saving and trying to, to create a profit in order to reinvest or do things like that's not how, uh, that's not inherently government (laughs) typically. And so for some organizations that are inherently government have inherently government functions, but in order to do the business that they are responsible for, um, on the state side, you're the alcohol bureau, the ABCs, is that what they yep. Yeah. Um, it's another one of those kind of kind of government, kind of industry type organizations where in order to do their business, they have to function on a commercial uh, commercial space. So they have a different set of um, rules, laws, and um, many times the impact of like a continuing resolution or even a sequestration has less impact on some of those types of organizations because of how they get their funding and how they operate gonna So something.
1: speaking, yeah, I want to add a fun fact about organizations, because we tend to look at the kind of big name organizations, the DODs and CIAs and NOAAs of the world. But um, here, here's a, a, a fun one for our listeners. Um, and I'm reading this directly from a, a quick search. The number of government agencies in the United States depends on how they are defined and counted. One possible mm-hmm. way to measure it is by looking at the independent executive units and the components of the executive department. According to this method, there are 96 independent executive agencies and 220 components of the executive department, for a total of 316 agencies. Another method of calculating agencies results in 405 agencies.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I add these numbers because when we're talking about government shutdowns, when we're talking about continuing resolution, when we're talking about diversifying your portfolio, there's at just at its base, 96 or so independent executive agencies, there's a way to diversify yourself across essential and non-essential agencies mm-hmm. to help sure up your bottom line. I just wanted to throw that out there because I think people see diversification as kind of challenging because there's only a few agencies. No, there are a lot of agencies. There aren't ne- necessarily that many CFO agencies, but there are a lot of agencies that you could consider federal entities
0: correct definitely so um and and having a nice look at like where you're currently where you currently exist what your current footprint is your network um that you have access to where they are and having not only a insight into like the opportunities or the type of services and products that align with your competencies or your products um not focusing just solely on that, but also looking at how does this agency get get its money? Like how does it receive funding and um historically how have this agency been impacted? Which offices are considered or deemed essential. Um, there's a lot of information due to the due to FOIA, due to the freedom of information, which is the FOIA yep. out there to help you get information like this. Um, and so, you know, doing a little bit of extra research and background um, support on agencies can definitely help you turn the tide on on having a better strategy to help you uh, weather these types of changes.
1: Yeah, and a couple other things I would add, um, building in budget flexibility. So don't make any major financial commitments. Now is not the time to procure a $20,000 Dell Tech license. <laughs> um <laughs> on an annual subscription now is not the time find a free software for 300 dollars until you can we can get clear of government funding um and no
0: shade, it- no shade to is no shade to Tech <laughs> at all
1: none at all but if you're nice. in the space Del-tech you know amazing. that yeah it's an amazing product but there are some more expensive products out there in the market now is a good time to maybe figure out where in your budget these major investments fall. And now is probably not the best time to make those those investments for those that have not previously built that into your budget. Now, if you you plan this back in April for your your next fiscal year and you everything's aligning, the stars are aligning, then well done on your part. But you know we wouldn't recommend making any last minute financial commitments right now, mm-hmm. um, as continuing resolutions are the hot topic of kind of the end of fiscal year. Um, We've talked about diversifying your customer base and staying in contact with your agency liaisons. Um, Use the Small Business Administration. They will also provide guidance for small businesses on how to weather some of these storms. um, Factor in for delays. Um, Your project timelines. Work with your PMs, your folks on the ground. Start having conversations early. Um, I've been in that position and flying blind, waiting for some additional guidance on what I can and can't tell our employees that are on site about how the company is gonna handle potential continuing resolution and working with our federal customers to get information to feedback to corporate so that we can make kind of a customer by customer decision on how communication needs to go out. Like this is a pretty exhaustive effort, um, especially when you have a company that's supporting multiple agencies that has different rules, regulations on what they can and can't say and who they can and can't have billable. Um, So plan those conversations out now so that they're not haphazard and your employees feel like you haven't done anything to kind of shelter them from this storm um, that that potentially happens. And it makes a big difference to be able to have those conversations early.
0: Yep, it does. And you want to make sure your employees um have a sense of security. You don't want anybody jumping ship to something that's a bit more guaranteed they feel is guaranteed um because of a, you know, it's an essential um it's a, it's essential work. Um because now, you know, it's cutthroat in GovCon. And um companies that do have those contracts and openings or availabilities can definitely staff up. In a cost-effective way, in situations like this, where they're taking advantage of um, the state of the marketplace to, um, you know, grow, to hire people. Basically, it's something that um, could happen. And one way to do that is, of course, managing the cash flows um, and, you know, ha- talking, you know, with SBA or your accountant. Um, different banks, if you you should have a good relationship with uh, financial institutions, trying to seek the low interest working capital, uh, because you don't really know how long it's going to last. Like y'all said, it's usually short term, but there have been instances where it went longer than what was anticipated. And do you have the funding? Do you have the the, um, dollars to support the expenses of holding your staff? Um, without receiving payment, like on the contracts that you have, or without being able to get those awards that you were planning um, to come through, um, because that's not going to happen in a time like this.
1: And I think change also um, can also be a catalyst for creativity. Mm -hmm. Um, So think about some of the things that you can reinvest in. So while you want to keep your overhead low, if you've got the budget for it, now's a great time to pull in some of your employees that may, you know, be on a temporary hold from working on a project to to stage some proposals that you're working on or that, you know, are coming and, and help clean up some content. You may have, you know, SharePoint administrators that are working on contracts or other, you know, folks that have expertise in Confluence or Kafka or any number of platforms. Where you can start building R and D proof of concept projects um, that you can now you can take to market once you know you have the availability of funding and those conversations open back up. So also look at creative ways to utilize the resources and the funding that you do have to get you ahead of the game for when the CRs are lifted, um, so that you've got an opportunity there. Um, to to take advantage of things that maybe haven't been done. Your BAs, your business analysts are great folks to help you clean up your proposal library or help you prepare for your next audit. I mean, these things, you're going to pay for it anyway, so you might as well use resources that you have and the time that you have to get ahead of some of these operational things that um, are going to come. DMMC we'll talk about later, another great opportunity to bring in some of these resources to help you prepare for your audits and security um, audits and things of that nature.
0: Yeah, so I want to, I mean, we definitely a lot of good information. Um, I want us to try to transition into talking more about one of the other um, changes that's happening in a program that's very beneficial to a lot of small businesses. I think sometimes underutilized by the government, but the hub zone. Um, Yaj, you want to give us kind of overview what hub zones are?
1: Sure, as someone located in a hub zone. Um small business uh, small businesses in high unemployment, low-income areas can receive economic boosts from the Hub Zone contracting program. Um specifically, as we mentioned earlier, the Hub Zone program provides contracting assistance to small businesses located in economically distressed communities referred to as historically underutilized business zones or hub zones to promote job growth, capital investment, economic development in these areas, including Indian reservations. And I think it's also extending to uh, Hawaii. Um, I don't know all the regulations about that, but I do know I've seen some recent communication about that. Um, the program's benefit for HUBZone zone certified companies include competitive and sole source contracting, uh, a 10% price evaluation preference and full and open contract competitions, um, as well as subcontracting opportunities. Um, the federal government has a goal of awarding 3% of all dollars for federal prime contracts to HUBZone Zone Certified Concert uh, excuse me, Hub Zone Certified Concerns. I say that very specifically. The federal government has a goal. You can look in any number of databases to see how close they are to achieving that goal. That is a different conversation for a different podcast, not today, but there are goals for all of these set aside statuses. Um, some things that changed. Did, and um, we
0: did touch on that a little bit in season one where we talked about. Um, yes, we did. Yes, where we talked about goals um, for the set asides and things. So definitely go check out season one if you haven't already um, to hear more about um, just kind of that's in the GovCon 101, just getting started overview. Um, so yes, we have yeah, Tasha and I always
1: have thoughts and opinions of the about these things. So we won't jump into <laughs> that's not the topic of today. Um, but so so let's talk about change and even the hub zone space. So the hub zone map changed. Uh, just this past July, mm-hmm. you can go on the site, um, which we'll post in a link to, Um, But the new hub zone map is used to determine whether or not your principal office and employees are located in a hub zone area. Your firm's eligibility to participate in the program might be impacted if your office is located or your employees reside um, in an area that's no longer part of the hub zone map. And it mm-hmm. is literally a map of 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 the areas, and you put in zip codes or cities. And it shows you with a color code, a key, and a grid what's considered hub zone, what's transitioning out of hub zone, when it's transitioning. Um, and they, they just recently updated that. So yeah. you may want to check, especially if you are current hub zone. I'm sure they've sent notifications as well, but it may be changing. So you have to keep pulse on that, especially if you're going after opportunities that are a year or two out that you are trying to push towards having a set aside status or something like that. So this does need to, to kind of fit into your strategy. Um, the de- definition of the principal office changed in 2016. Um, there was a final ruling that required all hub zone small businesses' principal office to be located in the hub zone to limit abuse of because people were popping up virtual offices mm-hmm. in hub zones or temporary offices in hub zones. Um, so that that's changed, and that, that's not going to change back. Um, they they did um, also change the minimum employee percentage. Um, so you've got to. You originally, some years ago, had a minimum requirement of 20%, and now um, it's 35%. Recertification requirements have changed. Um, so you must recertify every three years instead of annually. This is an improvement, um, but it still has to stay on your radar, um, especially with hub zone location changes, employment requirements changing. You need to know. In a, with a three-year forecast how you intend to meet that requirement because it might have been easier annually, um, but now you've got to plan for it and be able to show evidence that you're meeting the requirements. The changes are based on census data, uh, so there could be more changes. We don't know when they're going to roll out because this mm-hmm. is done um, in arrears based upon information of who's living where, demographics, and a bunch of other census information.
0: But um, this is this is also one of those things where you know, I, I believe we're on the same page with this. There should not be, just because you have a set aside, there shouldn't be this over-reliance um, on that set aside um, for how you decide to pursue opportunities. And it just goes back into what we've been talking about with diversifying your portfolio and your strategy and how you choose to seek and pursue opportunities. Um, these, the set asides like zone, 8A, you know, woman-owned, these are they're good tools, right, uh, to help leverage and give you serve as a catalyst, but not necessarily should be your end all is all. Um, there's always attempted reforms. You know, uh, in 2016, there was a proposed rule to restrict the use of the hub zone pricing, price preference in small business set asides, but it had not been and was not enacted. Um, just like we talked about the current court ruling with the 8A program right now, there's always, you know, some type of um, potential risk associated with uh, access and the the capacity to leverage it. Even COVID nineteen, Yas, when you were talking about them changing the rule in twenty sixteen uh, uh, to restrict and prevent like the remote working, I'm like, I wonder if they, you know, made certain concessions during COVID time. Um, and even now post COVID, how people work is significantly shifted and to penalize hub zones for taking advantage of the cost efficiencies that are resulting from like how staffing models have changed and how people, uh, the future of work is impacting like the day to day. How is that impact? I love to have that conversation with a hub zone that we have on at some point. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the proposed expansion areas, you know, there's a 2022 rule proposed rule, uh, would expand the hub zone coverage significantly by Adding lands under, um, like what you were stating before the Hawaii Homelands definition. And so there's opportunity for spaces and areas that previously did not qualify for the program um, to be a part of that. And so taking into consideration if this is something that you're intending to pursue, that having though having that awareness of some of the intention to expand that program is going to be, is going to be very beneficial.
1: Absolutely. Um, let's jump into healthcare and and labor. Um, not my area of expertise, but as with neither and man- <laughs> you know, as with almost any manager, if you've got P and L responsibility, you dive way further into health uh, care regulations, labor relations, all things HR than you ever thought you would be in your career. Um, so let's just talk about some of these things as a small business. Um, you need to be aware of because there were some pretty big. Um, impact with the Affordable Care Act um, and the subsequent revision. So, I mean, I want to start with healthcare um, because these are things, again, we're bringing up these changes because we want our listeners to be aware. We want you to be cognizant of the things you should be looking out for and listening to. Um, this information is all over the internet, but you also have a ton of great consultants, a ton of great resources, free and paid, that can help you with navigating some of these things. Um, You're not expected to know it all, but you should be aware of these things. Um, A couple of them specifically are employer mandates. Businesses with 50-plus full-time equivalent employees must offer affordable, comprehensive health coverage or pay a penalty. I think most people knew that you have to offer health care. I'm not sure that all of our listeners know that there's a penalty for not adhering to some of these rules. Um, And this applies to federal contractors. This isn't just a commercial kind of nice-to-have thing. there are penalties that are waged if you're not providing sufficient services to your employees. Um, and this includes essential health benefits. Small business plans must cover 10 categories of essential services like hospitalization, prescription drugs, maternal care. There's a lot of requirements to fall under these things and these rules changed. Um, they did change with affordable care and they'll likely change again as there continued conversations about even the viability of the, how long-term the Affordable Care Act will remain in place. So you got to keep your ear to the ground. Um, health plan affordability. So not just the coverage that you provide, but how affordable it is. Um, mm-hmm. Small business plans costing over 9.5% of employee income may trigger penalties without an affordability waiver. Um, there are so many penalties and requirements and moving pieces and parts. Um, and it's a lot to take on as a small business. You know, So just at least being aware of what's going on so if it is that you have to bring in additional resources or kind of study up on what's going on you at least know where to start um okay i had never heard of a cadillac tax this was a new one have you heard of that before tasha
0: i've heard the term i've heard the term um of course it don't apply to me because we're small <laughs>
1: <laughs> but for those that for those that it does apply to, you probably already know about it. But it's the 40% <laughs> excise tax on high cost employer plans. Um it was delayed, but it it could impact premiums. So mm-hmm. your your high cost plans do do matter. And they call it Cadillac for a reason. It's only Tuesday, but when we said Cadillac, it immediately made me think of Cadillac margaritas. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. It's a little early in the week for Cadillac margaritas, but true. I'll be there soon enough. That's true.
0: That's true.
1: <laughs> soon. <laughs> um, clearly, I need to stay, keep my health care plan up to date. Um, <laughs> uh, W-2 reporting. Um, aggregate cost of employee-sponsored health coverage must be reported annually. I think that's a no-brainer, but for some of our new insurance, um, tax reporting and how that impacts um, your health care and the laws around that, it's it's a real thing you will get heavily penalized for not adhering you don't know how to do it or you're finding it overwhelming outsource it because it's one of those things that can stink you if you don't realize what's happening around you and how the regulations are changing
0: um i want to just touch on the the shop exchanges um you know, small businesses can purchase competitively priced plans through the ACA exchanges. And currently they're still enrolling, um, under 2% of small business workers. Um, I know through my own experience with trying to determine like health benefits and stuff for my employees, um, it's, it's, there's so many options and it's not always like clear what's the best path, best pathway to go, whether it's through one of the platform providers who have relationships, um, with the health benefit, health plan um, providers, or if you go through the ACA and provide that to your employees, and exactly what is the management, what does the management of that entail? So I believe that's part of the reason why the numbers are a lot less, uh, you know, for small businesses. But that's something that you definitely have to um, have an awareness of, and 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 make sure you consider that when, you, especially for your business, if you're considering um, different health benefit programs. Um, the wellness program rules as well. These are new guidelines that limit financial incentives, um, for health contingent employee wellness programs. Um, I, so wellness program rules, I know that I have not seen those come to fruition just yet. Are those, have you seen that they're coming out? Yas, information about those or. Um,
1: I think part of these changes were driven by the big push that was done, um, especially during COVID and some prior Mm -hmm. to as well, for companies to incentivize employees um, as including wellness programs as a part of your overall health benefits. The changes, um, I think, are more so specific about the health content. How much you can write off. Yeah, well, how much you can write off, but also how you determine who can and can't participate in these programs.
0: Gotcha. Um, so
1: there's a lot of lot of devil in the details kind of situations with the wellness program rules. So for companies that are offering these as incentives to your employees or your marketing on your website is wellness focused, mental health. Those are great things. Just stay aware of how the regulations are changing around what you can and can't offer, how you have to offer those, what packages they can be included in. And another thing, you know, we want to highlight about this healthcare, is, especially as a small business, have conversations with your employees that you're still trying to figure out what the best plans are for your business. Because open enrollment is an opportunity, while it's painful to get all of your employees enrolled, it is still an opportunity to change, improve, modify your plans. Um, And if you're having those conversations with employees so they know what's coming um, and that you're doing it in their best interest, obviously it needs to actually be in their best interest um that that, that i think people are more willing to adapt and adjust to those changes um because you're not going to get it right the first time or even if you got it right the first time you may have added 15 employees and what was right for five is no longer right for 15. so you have to stay aware of what's going on around you as well as what makes sense for your business and how those impacts um hit your bottom line hit your taxation hit your filing and reporting and things of that nature. And that's just a short list um of healthcare, but we wanted to highlight a few things. Um in, in on the healthcare side. Um let's get to the, apart let's from get to labor. The juicy. I was about to say, let's get
0: to the juicy, <laughs> let's get to the labor, which is very, 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 very painful, in my opinion. It's so yeah. many it's so many nuances to it. 100
1: percent agree. <laughs> you you want to start with overtime? Because that's always a fun
0: one. No. Okay. Okay. How about sick leave? Because that's more fun. What? No, none of it's fun, y'all. None, none. of it. None. But there, you know, there there is the increase. You know, salary threshold for overtime. So the threshold for overtime pay el- eligibility was raised to what thirty five thousand five hundred and sixty eight dollars per year in twenty twenty, and this means that more employees at small business may now qualify for overtime based on the salary level. Um, and so like how you price out your contracts, how you, you know, whatever hours you use for your FTE or full-time billable, like taking into account um, those additions, especially if you know the client (laughs) and it's one of those situations where there's going to, you know, the person's going to end up working or being allocated of hours more than anticipated. This is something you're going to have to have top of mind. Um, And Yas was talking about paid sick leave, you know, Federal contractors are required to provide up to seven paid uh, sick days annually under the 27th, uh, 2017 executive order. And some state and local laws also mandate um, paid leave. One of the other things is that you have to be careful when it comes to uh, paid sick leave, it, the whether or not it's for part-time employees or full-time employees, there's a lot of um, state-to-state, the rules shift uh, a lot with that so make sure that make sure that you are looking up your state specifically and it gets and, a little more complicated when you have employees across
1: <laughs> yeah and that's what I was about to say state. to that point I mean almost everything that we're talking about especially healthcare care and labor related this isn't just a federal thing you've got to be aware of federal and state regulations across any state where you have employees and your employee's address matters. So where they are listed as their primary residence is a state that you now work in. So you have to be aware of so many different things um, and they change. Um, so you know we we aren't providing all of this information to be overwhelming, which it probably is. So apologies. We're but we're we're hoping that by providing some of these things, maybe we're we're triggering thoughts or reminding you of some things that were already on your to do list, or maybe even added a few more. So apologies on that front as well. But we're we're hoping that these conversations really help um, the general awareness of the landscape and how often it kind of shifts um, as we as we work in this contractor space.
0: And, and we're gonna you uh, know I'd love to deep dive some more on the labor piece we're gonna try to summarize and wrap up a few of those so we can get into cyber really quick and and make sure that we give you some of those touch points before we have to close out but in the um our ban on arbitration clauses um since 2022 federal contractors cannot mandate arbitration agreements for claims of sexual assault and harassment um that's a very good one to know because I actually didn't know that one I didn't realize that it had happened. Uh and that's specific for government contractors, right? Um
1: as far as I know. Okay. Federal contractors. But again, we're giving you high level details. We recommend that you if any of these things hit home, you do you do diligence and and, and research it more on how it impacts your business or how laws may have changed or policies may have changed. I mean these things could change daily.
0: Yes. Um an expansion of the affirmative action um that was expanded in 2020 as well requiring uh, federal contractors to be more detailed uh, in their affirmative action plans. Um, now, with the movements that is happening today in politics with, around affirmative action, I think that's another one of those that you just kind of have to keep your ear to the ground on any changes to policy, rules, uh, um, labor laws associated uh, regarding that, to ensure that you know you're taking into account the risk. Um, Legal risk associated with um, any of your programs and and policies you may have in your employee handbook um, around affirmative action. Um, One, the limits on confidentiality agreements. So, in government, confidentiality agreements is you're going to see all types, sizes of agreements written in all types of non disclosures and teaming agreements and subcontracts and any type of agreement you have, there's going to be confidentiality agreements and federal contractors face limits on imposing confidentiality around pay harassment claims and discrimination issues that's something you should definitely be aware of you want to make sure you're not doing anything illegal when you're trying to hire people with regards to that um um there's a and this again ties in with equity another part of another very politically charged um which shouldn't be but politically charged uh topic um, that is happening and, and causing all types of changes in the space and actually across the country. So keeping an eye out for that. And um, I don't know, Yaz, did we want to get into the vaccine and mandates? and.
1: I don't know. I don't want to dig into that too deep because that's a whole conversation as well. But I think by this point, considering we're closing out 2023, um, there were exemptions. There were a lot of conversations. There were a lot of Laws, policies put in place, um, federal contractors were at one point required to ensure employees were successfully vaccinated. I mean, you had to report it to HR. They had to provide a log of it. They had to have names, dates, the whole nine. Um, we're seeing that lesson now, but um, these are things that we didn't expect. We didn't, you know, COVID happened. People were doing their best to survive these situations. Um, and the government had to make some changes as to how they tracked and and also audited and communicated what was going on with vaccines. If that happens again, you can expect a laundry list, a litany of changes yet again in terms of reporting requirements. And these reporting requirements fall on the business. Mm. Um, so just be aware that is a significant overhead cost for small businesses it's in large businesses the same um, to be able to capture all that information and report it as required because it was a federal law at the time.
0: Yeah. And especially I, I haven't
1: seen it redacted.
0: Well, that's true. And also ver you know, doing the verification of new employees, um, contractors must use an e-verify system to validate, um, new employee eligibility to legally work in the United States. That's another one of those costs. And it's kind of, I think that segues and ties into, um, like the cyber security, um, domain to a certain extent as well. Um, that's one of the reasons I do believe, uh, That particular law has been enacted um, just from a national security standpoint, and then all of the politics around immigration. (laughs) I know I can remember immigration. Um, A lot of the the conversation and happenings around immigration is another reason I do believe that 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 has been there. Plus, with government contracts, depending on the agency, the type of work you're doing, the sensitivities associated, it's very important to validate that you have legal employees on your contracts and supporting the clients in the space. The cybersecurity, like I stated, that is somewhat related to cybersecurity or security safeguards. Um, One of the, the other items is contractors must follow guidelines around securing sensitive government data and monitoring threats, as well as reporting breaches within a timely manner not only is there overarching requirements um, that are being flowed down and and created, there are agency specific uh, requirements around cybersecurity um, that are being enacted. So it's, it's, it's becoming very, I feel like it already has been nuanced and difficult, but even more so when it comes to the cyber arena.
1: Yeah, and where we see a lot of these changes live and where as a contractor, You'll hear this come up in the FAR clauses, DFARS, and you'll hear more recently, the last couple of years, CMMC. CMMC. So FAR is Federal Acquisition Regulation. Um, There have been five or six or so clauses that have changed in the last five years um, under cybersecurity safeguards. These clauses, when they change, typically end up in your contract. So you may have seen, even if you are not the one directly associated with the submission of a proposal, when you get an RFP or you get a documentation for solicitation from the government, pages on pages on pages on pages of clauses, those clauses matter. And you want to make sure you read through them or have someone that reads through them on your behalf that knows what they're looking at, because those are binding clauses that tell you what you can and cannot do in support of the contract. A good number of them are related to cybersecurity safeguards, so be aware. On top of that, there are DFARs, which are Defense Federal Acquisition Regulations, and they are supplements to the FAR. um, And they've been updated, I don't even know, a number of times uh, to strengthen the protection of the controlled defense information. um, And they, they were kind of a part of the stair step or the transition that we now see happening into CMMC. Um, CMMC. I know we're giving you guys lots of acronyms. is Security Maturity Model Certification. It's got the framework. It's got five levels. Um, it's eventually going to become mandatory. They're already on their way towards mandatory with I think some pilot groups. Um, and you should be just kind of aware um, of what the difference is. We talk uh, in cybersecurity. You hear a lot about FedRAMP. Um, FedRAMP and CMMC and FARs and DFARS are completely separate. FedRAMP is a you know a cybersecurity assessment. Um, and continuous monitoring requirement that the federal government has in place more so around cloud services. We're a platform. We're, we're cloud infrastructure. And CMMC is a cybersecurity framework that was created by defense for securing agencies. So it's not a technology-specific thing. It's an organization-wide thing to show kind of like an ISO or compliance audit that you holistically meet a lot of the requirements around the cybersecurity that the government particularly the Department of Defense is putting forward to say, you've done what you need to be able to do to work with our agency. Um, Tasha, and- I'm going to hand it over to you because I know you you love UTM CMSB.
0: No, I don't. I do not. Do? No, 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 I don't. I just wanted to jump in and um say that even though this sounds like it's, oh, so specific and just for federal, a lot of the state or this is, I have seen hints of components from the guidelines um in state opportunities. And um, I think even on the commercial side, companies are starting to take heed and be a bit more um cautious about the, you know, cybersecurity concerns and um, the logistics, like their pipeline and pipeline for supplier diversity, supplier resources, and ensuring that the from a cybersecurity standpoint that they're covered within their environment, even at the commercial level. So even though you're hearing us talk about this from the context of federal and defense, um, it is something that is widespread and I think is being adopted holistically um, by markets outside of the government. space. agreed.
1: And it's called a safeguard for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's it's useful for any organization to at least look at what the self-assessments look like because it will highlight some things for you and how you operate your business as well, regardless of whether or not you're going for a defense contract and help you prepare for what, you know, as Tasha alluded to, a potential adoption across all businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing it in supply chain management already as well. Um, so we, we wanna caution everyone to not turn a blind eye to it because you say, oh, I don't work in defense. That's not how the, the future of working um, across The U.S. as and particularly internationally um, is going to look in the next couple of years. Um, You want to kind of highlight some key things to know about CMMC, Tosh?
0: Yeah, so you know, um, CMMC and as y'all said, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model uh, Certification is newer-ish cybersecurity framework that's um, being developed by the Department of Defense for defense contractors, and um, the DFARS uh, was initially released in, what, 2000 in response to the increasing number of attacks, cyber attacks against the United States. And the regulation outlined specific cybersecurity requirements for defense contractors and was largely based on the NIST, the um, National Institute of Standards and Technology Cybersecurity Framework. However, in recent years, um, the DFARS has been replaced by DOD's more comprehensive CMMC standards. And some key things to know is that um, Is designed to improve the protection, cybersecurity protections, and reduce the risk um, to the defense industrial base, the DIB, their supply chain, and establish five level. They, they've established those five levels of maturity from the basic hygiene to advanced capabilities, um, and they have third party auditors who will assess and certify a company's level based on their CMC level based on the processes and security controls, um, and. Previously, they allow for self-certification. Um, I do believe that at the level one, um, there's an allowance for this, and I'm not sure because I know there's been changes with the program, um, but just as a brief like overview for uh, the difference, there was initially a CMC 1.0, and now there's CMC 2.0. With the 1.0 release um, that came out, I think it was in January of 2020, um, it was the original framework model and contained um, the five maturity processes with 17 capability domains and 171 different controls and practices across the five levels. And it was focused heavily focused on asset management, um, IDAM, and incident response, and IDAM being identity management. It emphasized auditing and certifying at the legal Entity level. And it was developed by John John Hopkins APL uh, for the DOD. Whereas CMMC 2.0 was released in November of 2022 um, as an updated, more refined version and contains the five revised maturity processes with 20 capability domains and approximately 375 controls across five levels. Um, and I, you know, levels one, three, and five are the ones that tend to get most of the. the um, the fame and conversation, but it expands coverage of areas like supply chain um, risk, situational awareness, and and governance in addition to the asset management, identity management, and incident response that we um, heard about in the 1.0 version. It also allows more flexibility in certifying at the CAGE code versus legal entity level and will utilize online self-assessment to enable maturity improvements. Um, importantly, it incorporates the feedback from industry working groups and public comment. They did uh, several different cycles um, of facilitation to uh, acquire information to inform the improvements that they made. And it is managed by the CMMC accreditation body for the DOD. Key changes in that 2.0 version focus on the flexibility and implementation and better definition of processes and controls, um, increase industry engagement, as well as enabling um, incremental maturity growth. Um, through self-assessment. So, and there's, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 I was just going to
1: say, this impacts a couple different um, organizations, types of, types of businesses, a lot of groups, federal contracting, um, anyone that handles federal contract information, um, anyone that handles CUI or CDI, so that's controlled unclassified or, or covered defense information, uh, controlled technical information, um, as well as ITAR data. Um, So there's a, for those that work in these spaces and, and others, um, you're gonna see some significant impacts in how you deal with these changes, especially as they still haven't formed, I don't think they're in the final, final version, um, and they're still in the initial pilots. it's starting to plan for it now. So if we wanted to tie these pieces together, for example, if there is a continuing resolution and your employees that you have, some folks are on the bench, it's a great opportunity to have someone Identified as a champion for your CMMC self-assessment, you can start doing these things on your own, pulling information, learning how you need to, what you need to do to comply, and making the best use of those resources you have available, and working with your HR team to figure out how you can incentivize those employees to continue even once you know you re- return to work. And now to tie it full circle. As a small business with a CMMC certification, you now look even better in addition to your set aside status of now having in advance of even necessarily being awarded a contract, which in the very near future, you may need these certifications to even participate in some of these solicitations or submit some of these solicitations.
0: And you're now ahead of the game. Specifically the CMMC certification you will need yep. in order to, for DOD awards. Um, yep will be a requirement like you literally may not get the award if it's not if you don't if you can't show proof of your certification.
1: Yep. So those are ways you can kind of adapt to those changes and make the most out of them. Um and also just another thing to have in your in your in your hat and your of 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 things that you have capabilities around your co- your company um, that you can take advantage of. Um we provided a lot of information on
0: we did. We <laughs> did. We went we and and you can stay updated um, and, you know, there's we're going to make sure to try to add into our show notes uh, links to um, various government funded or government provided websites that have details about um, several of these topics that we've hit on um, as far as the CMMC. Definitely make making sure that you stay updated and frequently check the CMMC ABA website for new resources, guidance and announcements as the program itself evolve, evolves. You want to make sure that you're being proactive um, um, to enable you guys to cost effectively meet those requirements and remain competitive um, because the adoption is going to increase and it'll probably happen faster than what you will anticipate.
1: With that, we hope you've, we've provided you guys with some food for thought, some some areas that you can start improving your strategies around, you can plan for, um, and just be more prepared to deal with change because it's inevitable it will happen um and so now you have a choice to either get with it or try and uh i guess maybe change courses i i, I don't know it,
0: yeah it's, it's yeah, really like Get with it or, or or get out. I mean, <laughs> it's
1: really that simple mm-hmm. because, you know, as Sasha said earlier, the government as a whole is not going to change because, you know, this is something that's inconveniences you as a business. So be prepared for it. Take it in stride. Um, we appreciate you as t- tuning in today. Um, as always, we're looking for feedback. We are always interested in content. We're always interested in your ideas, as well as anyone that would want to, you know, join us for for one of our podcast sessions. Thank you again for, for joining us
0: today. That's right. Thank you for joining us on Unveil GovCon Stories. It's a Hive 39 Media production with your hosts, Tasha and Yaz. Um, as she stated, please subscribe, like, share, and reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Thank you.